Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be primarily in Numbers chapter 13. We're going to get there in just a minute. And uh, for the past three weeks, we have been in a teaching series that's entitled, That's a Good Question, where we are seeking to answer some of life's most important questions with the truths that are found in God's Word. And this week, the question that I want us to ask ourselves is this, is your tongue, is your tongue a faith sower or a flame thrower? Is your tongue a faith sower or a flame thrower? Scotty, I give you permission to put that in one of your hip-hop songs, all right? That's fire, people. Well, Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. In James 3, 5, it says, The tongue is a small member Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Our tongues have the ability to form and launch words into the air. And when they land in the ears of the hearers, they have the power to do a couple of things. To bring life or death. They have the power to bring hope or despair, healing or hurt. And you know, when I was growing up, I was aware uh, of the hurtfulness of words. And so I don't know where I got this, but I had some sayings that I learned as a child. Uh, my mom did not teach these to me, but I used them to defend myself when someone was what I thought was attacking me. For example, someone would say, James, you are so selfish. And I would say, well, look who's talking. Right? That's a good boing, right? Uh, here's one, James, you're so annoying. I know you are, but what, okay, you learned it too. I know you are, but what am I? James, you're a nerd. It takes one to know one. one. Okay, this sounds like scripture here that we're, (laughs) this is, this is a very powerful one that really gets to the, the heart of things. When you say something mean to me, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, you, right? Such deep truths here. And number five, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Oh, if only that was true. If only that was true. Because some of the greatest wounds I have ever experienced in my life and that I have actually given have been not from sticks and stones that break bones, but from careless fiery words that have come from my mouth. The tongue has the power to melt hearts and to scorch spirits. And the truth is the human tongue is an extremely powerful tool. What we say and how we say it matters because life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now, I want to be clear about something as we're moving forward in this message. When we say it has power, and li- power uh, life and death, in the tongue, I want to make clear that there is a new age teaching, and I said this about two years ago in one of our messages. 
It's a popular teaching among Word of Faith teachers, and they will falsely teach that our words are so powerful that we have the power, the ability to bring into existence things that do not exist. They will say, if you need a promotion, don't sit around waiting for it. By your faith-filled words, make one. Speak it into existence. Or if the doctor doesn't have a cure for your disease, then make one. You need money? Call it forth to you. Money cometh unto me. Call it to you. They will teach that because in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be there in a few months. We're going to hopefully go to the book of Genesis. But in the beginning, it says that God spoke things into existence. For example, he said, let there be light, and there was light. They will, and then they will go, God can do that, and we were created in his image, in the image of God. Therefore, we have also the ability to speak and to call things into existence. They will also go use scripture, and they will say we are to call into it. Scripture says that we are to call into existence the things that do not exist. And part of that verse is in the Bible. It's found in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. And it's extreme, this is why it's extremely important that we, you guys know the word of God apart from just me or Terry or anybody that's up here preaching the word. We need to be a body that knows and understands the word of God because if you do research, they will quote Romans 4, 17 says that you need to call into existence the things that do not exist. But let's look at the, the verse in context. This is Paul. He's talking about Abraham. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he, speaking of Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see that there? Who is the one that's calling things into existence? God is, not man. So we're not up here teaching that we have the power within our mouth to bring things into existence that do not exist. But when we do speak, we need to understand that our words have power to positively or negatively influence and shape the relationships that we have with one another. We need to be aware of that, church. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Is your tongue, is your tongue a faith sower or a flame thrower? And so we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13. And while, if you're still turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background. Back in Genesis, uh, I think it's chapter 12, God comes to a man whose name was Abram. He was 75 years old. And God later changes his name to Abraham. But he comes to Abraham and he says, listen, if you will leave, he says, listen, leave your country, leave your people and your father's household. And I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you. And then he gives him three promises. He says, that land that I show you, you're going to inherit it. That's number one. Number two, you're going to have a ton of descendants who are also going to inherit that Land. And number three, I am going to bless you, and I'm also going to bless the families of all the earth through you. And that, that prophecy actually came true when Jesus came into the world. Jesus is from the lineage of Abraham, from the Jewish people. And so Abraham, he chose to believe God, and he obeyed. And Scripture says that his belief was counted to him as righteousness. And so from one man, God brought forth the nation of Israel. And a, a few hundred years later, they ended up being enslaved in Egypt. That is, until God raised up another man. What was his name? 
Moses. He raised up Moses, and he says, it's time. It's time for me to send you into Egypt, and I'm going to use you to set my people free. And then I want you to lead them into the land that I promised to Abraham back in the Abrahamic covenant that I made with him. I'm going to use you to do that. The reason that it's called the promised land is because it's the land that was promised to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so in Numbers 13, that's where we're going to right now, Moses and the Israelites have been out of Egypt now for about a year and a month or so. And they're about to enter into the land that God had promised Abraham. And it's important to note here that God always keeps his promises. You might need to write that down on your heart. God always, doesn't matter how long it takes, God is going to keep his word. And they're about to enter into the promised land, but before they go in, God tells Moses to do something, and that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Notice he says, I am giving it to the people of Israel. You don't work for a gift, do you? If you have to work for it, it's not a gift, it's a wage. So he says, I'm going to give these people this land. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among you. So there's 12 tribes. God says, from each of those tribes, choose one leader to go out and to go into the land and spy it out. And Moses tells the spies to do three things. He says, number one, see what the land is like. See if that land is actually good or bad. Secondly, he says, see what the people are like and what the cities are like. And thirdly, he says, I want you to bring back some of the fruit that is in the land. And so the spies go in the land. They spend 40 days there. And before they come back, they cut down a branch with a cluster of grapes on it. And the cluster is so big that they have to put it on a pole and two men have to carry it out. That's how big the cluster of grapes was. And there were also, they brought back pomegranates and figs when they returned. And and we're going to pick up in verse 26. It says, And they came to Moses, the spies did, and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the land of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. In other words, it's just like God said it would be. It's agriculturally rich. There are plenty of pasture land for our livestock to live and graze, which will allow them to produce milk. That's where the flowing with milk comes from. And then there's honey. Now, when you think about honey, they are not talking about the bee, the honey bee. They're talking about the syrup extract that flows off of figs and dates as they hang on the tree. So, in other words, this land is very, very rich. God did not exaggerate when he said that this land would be prosperous. And so the spies go, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we're going to pick up in verse 28. However, or 
But the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak were giant warriors of their day. And verse 29 says, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. It's infested with enemies. And the spies are basically saying, yes, this land is awesome. Its cities are awesome and grand. Everything we could ever hope for is in that city. But we can't do it because our enemies are greater than us. Their report is filled with unbelief. They're using their tongues as flame throwers. This is not producing faith in those who are hearing what they're saying. But Caleb, verse 30, but Caleb, he was one of the 12 spies that went in, quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, think about this. Caleb was with the other spies. He saw the same things, experienced the exact same things as they did, but there was a difference between the, the two or the two groups. He did notice the strength of his enemies. He didn't deny that there was an enemy in there, but he had faith. He had faith in God, and therefore his eyes were opened to a God who was greater than the enemies that stood before him. So Caleb was not afraid. He believed God. Caleb had faith. And what is he doing right now? He's using his tongue to try and sow seeds of faith to the listeners, to encourage them. Don't listen to these guys. We can do this through God. Now, as you're listening, is your tongue a tongue that helps people believe or become disgruntled? Is it a flamethrower? Verse 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They continue to, to sow unbelief. They continue to speak words that are not true. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out. Now they're going to start, they're not going to say it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Look what they say. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. In other words, we wouldn't want to be there anyway. And all the people that we saw in it are great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. They're basically saying we saw them and we were afraid of them. And they saw us, but they were not afraid of us. That's what they're saying right here. We, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. But this, this was their faithless, understand, it's faithless perception of a reality. And the reality being shaped by falsehood was not true. 
Listen, they needed to understand that their enemies were actually terrified of them. When their enemies saw them, they actually were terrified of them. James, how do you know that? It doesn't say that in the passage. Because 40 years later, when they get to go back and enter into the land, none of these spies are going to go because they all die in the wilderness. But their, their children, when they go get ready to go back into the land, Joshua sends just two spies this time. He ain't spend, sending 12. He sends two spies in there, and they go to the city of Jericho where a harlot whose name was Rahab took them in. And this is what she tells them. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. When did he do that? Forty years prior. They heard about that. He says, we heard that he dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Even Rahab knew the truth better than the spies did. And without knowing it, God had already conquered their enemies with the fear that they were saying was in them. And he was ready. I mean, they're standing days away from entering into this land. He's ready to give it to them. But because, Hebrews 3 verse 19 says, but because of their unbelief, because they did not believe the promises of God, they were unable to enter. And it makes me wonder, even in my life, how many times has God wanted to bless me? How many times has God wanted to bless you with promises that he's given us but I have refused to believe the truth about what he has said. They were trusting in themselves. They were looking at themselves and trusting in their strength, their ability, instead of the God who promised that he was going to give them the land. And therefore, it was impossible to them. And, you know, we can often come to circumstances in our lives that seem overwhelming and impossible. Some of us this morning have those in our lives right this minute. This is impossible. Whatever that thing, it's impossible. It's overwhelming. And I bet you these people were tired. Have you ever camped, gone camping? I'm not talking about you drive your car up and get your tent out. I mean, that's, that's kind of hard. I'm talking about putting a backpack on, putting a jet boil in, putting some mountain house on, a, a sleeping bag, and going out like 10, 15 miles for three or four nights. It is tiring, and there's times you're on the the trail, you're just like, oh, we're almost there, and you turn the corner, and the sign says 18 more miles, switchbacks all the way, and you just want to get to the the, uh, campsite, pitch your tent, get a fire going, get some some water, and, and that sort of thing. These people were weary, and you know, there's times in our lives that this happens in in our circumstances, and you might be thinking. Well, this can't be God, because God would never give me more than I can handle. God will never, have you ever said that to somebody? I have. Look, you got this, because God will never give you more than you can handle. Listen, don't say that. That's not in the Bible. I've said it, so I'm admitting it. 
That's not in the Bible. I have, you know what it is? I've confused it with 1 Corinthians 10, 3 that, that says, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So that is in the Bible. So I've kind of confused it. But it's the, the, the saying, God will never give you more than you can handle, just is not true. Because the truth is, anytime you choose to follow God by faith and you step out, Mark my words, if you're truly following in faith, there is going to come a season where that joy that, you know, yeah, gets tested. Your faith is going to get tested. And God is going to graciously allow circumstances to come in that are difficult and greater than you are, like the giants, and to be more than you can handle. Why? Because he's mean. Stone me. I should not have said that. He is not mean. No, because he loves you. Because he loves me? Yeah. Because he loves you. He wants you to learn to walk by faith. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. This is is the answer to why God allows us to have circumstances greater than ourselves. For we do not want you to be unaware. Paul is writing to the church, telling them what has happened as they've walked out in faith. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, church... We have to come to a place where we decide, are you going to walk by faith or are you going to walk by sight? Are you going to walk by, are we going to walk by the promises of God or are we going to be walking by the things around us? And that, the, the danger of that is that you will be like a roller coaster. One day, if your circumstances are good, man, God is good. But the minute that you're down in a valley or your body doesn't feel good or some catastrophe happens or things aren't going the way that you think they should your faith is going to be uh, shattered, unstable. And let me ask you this. Are you in a place right now that you know that God has called you, he's led you here, and he's placed you in it, and you feel like you cannot go on? Well, let me encourage you. Rejoice, because God has given you more than you can handle. (laughs) To make you, or hopefully, that you would rely on him on the God who raises the dead. And see, that's what's happening, happening in our passage this morning. God is calling his people to trust not in themselves. Listen, I've, I've said this before, and I'm just going to be much more clear this morning. There is a saying in our culture that says, trust in yourself. It's, it's in every kid's movie. It's, in, it's all the time. You just got to trust in yourself. You got this. Every time I hear that, I hear this, eh, That is not true. The scripture does not teach that. The scripture says, don't trust in yourself, trust in God. Okay, so every time you hear that, just go, and and you can get over it and put yourself to trust in God. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Why? Why are they crying? Because their hearts had been set ablaze by the unbelief of, of the ten, of the ten spies. 
I bet you they were excited to see those guys coming down the mountain. Yes. What report are they going to bring back? They bring back a report of despair, and it ravages through the entire congregation. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now it's Moses and Aaron's fault this is like this. The whole congregation said to them, would that we, listen, this is great. I mean, this is, is this, is this you? Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord now, oh, it's the Lord's fault now. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Oh, we care so much about our kids. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let's go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Their imaginations are greater to them than the word of God. And when that happens, things begin to spin and things begin to happen that are ungodly. They begin to blame leadership and they become suspicious of God. They rewrite history and they forget what they had been delivered from in Egypt. They want to go right back to that which God had brought them out of. And let me give you some advice here. If you are in a place where you're tired, weary, fearful, angry, discouraged, discontent, two things. Don't spread it to the rest of the group. Just don't, don't, it's very contagious. Number two, don't make any major decisions. Okay? Don't elect a leader to take you back to Egypt. The unbelief of a few can ignite a wildfire amongst the congregation and ravage the entire assembly. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Verse 5, it says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They see what's happening. And said to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Now look, they are going to speak. They're going to use their tongues one more time to try to sow seeds of faith to the congregation. They say, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. There's a great reward. If the, if the Lord delights in us, if we believe in him, he will bring us into the, this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Just trust in him. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel. How are they rebelling by not believing the promise. When we don't believe the promises of God, we are actually rebelling. We choose to believe a lie, and we, are, we will go into rebellion against God. And, he, and they say, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. We'll eat them for breakfast, is basically what they're saying. Their protection is removed from them. Their faith was giving them eyes to see. They were scared of us not the other way around. Just do not fear them. You see what faith does? Faith empowers. 
Faith empowers, but fear devours. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Joshua and Caleb were seeking to encourage the brothers and sisters with words of faith and truth, but they were becoming despised by those who had chosen, and I, I want to say that again, chose fear. They chose to fear. And grumbling is contagious, and it's destructive, and it is divisive. Paul warns us in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of those who are naive. And if you know the rest of the story, in in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, you know that God disciplines the entire nation by having them wander in the desert for 40 years. They actually get what they had requested to die in the wilderness They spend 40 years there, except for two, Joshua and Caleb, who had chosen to walk by faith. So back to our question that we started with. Is your tongue a faith sower or a flame thrower? How do you know? Listen to yourself speak. What comes out of your mouth? Is it life Or is it death? Is it faith or is it fear? Is it encouragement or discouragement? Is it praising or complaining? What comes out of your mouth? Because Jesus says that in Matthew 15, 8, whatever fills your heart will fuel your tongue. Listen, your mouth, your mouth is a smoke detector to your heart. When you hear yourself grumbling, complaining, gossiping, and slandering, and spreading discouragement you can rest assured that there is a destructive fire that is kindling within your heart. And if you do not get that fire put out, you're going to get burned and you're going to burn others. So we need to to listen to ourselves as we're talking because it will help us to diagnose what's going on in the heart. It's not enough to just kind of, let's just change what you're saying. We need to address the heart. Because if you transform the heart, it will transform the mouth. That's how God set things up. Your your mouth will pour out whatever your heart is hooked up to. And so if our words reveal there's a fire breaking out into our hearts, how do we put it out? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Well, today's passage teaches us three things. And it teaches us that the the Israelites were... were, um, suffering from three spiritual ailments. Number one, they were suffering from spiritual malnutrition, spiritual malnutrition. They were grumbling because they were spiritually hungry. You know, when I'm hungry physically, um, you, it's not, I'm not a great guy to be around. My family has learned that if I've been working all day and I come home, it's not the best time for them to ask me, can, Dad, can I do this or that? Because I need to get some food in my stomach so I can think more clearly. And that's what's happening to the Israelites. They were grumbling because they were not feasting upon the word of God. 
They did not take to heart the promises of God, namely, in this case, that I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you this land. Had their hearts been saturated in the word of God, they too would have seen what Joshua and Caleb saw. Let me ask you this. Are you suffering from spiritual malnutrition? What, are you, what have you been feeding your heart with? What are you believing will satisfy your heart? Is it God or something else? Is it a, a new toy, a new job, a new spouse, a new couch? If only this will happen, then I will praise God. And church, I want to, us to address something here. That even in our churches, we can come to church and become critical and do what happened with the ten spies. And maybe that's what's happening in your heart as you're in our church, or in any church for that matter. And let me give you some questions to ask yourself as you're evaluating things. Because there are things that happen in churches that need to be addressed and and dealt with. I don't want to ever be a church where you feel like we can't come and address issues. But let me ask you this. Here's some questions you can ask of whether or not you should address it. Does what you're looking for exist? Is what you're looking for, does it even even exist? Is it a realistic biblical expectation? Like, does God make much of it in his word? Whatever that thing is, like the gospel, for example. I would say that God makes a lot about his son in the Bible, right? So that if, if this church is not making much of Jesus, yes, we need to address it. But if it's like the color of the chairs, that might be something that you need to rethink. Is it Is it idealistic? Are you being idealistic? And what you're wishing for is just a dream or a preference? Is what you're disgruntled about something that, all right, listen to this one. Is it something that you could actually be a part of helping to bring into the church? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and be a part of the solution? A few weeks ago, we were in a meeting, and, and Scotty was in there, and he gave me some great wisdom that I'm going to give to you guys. He said that whenever he has somebody come to him with, with uh, changes that needs to be made, he goes, thank you. You got any solutions? Or are you just a disgruntled fault finder? Try to discern that between yourself. Are you, you might be disgruntled because God's raising you up to do that very thing that you see needs to be done in the church. And I share all this because unbelief is contagious. Grumbling is contagious. It can produce discouragement, divisions, and fear, and it can defile an entire congregation, just like it did to Israel. So I want to encourage us all to spend time feasting on the Word of God, filling our hearts with His truths and promises. Secondly, the Israelites were suffering from spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. They forgot what God had already done in their lives. They forgot Abraham, the promises that... They knew about Abraham and the promises that had been given to him and how God had walked him through it. They knew about Isaac. They knew about Jacob. They knew about Joseph. And they had also been in Egypt when God delivered them with the ten mighty plagues. They also saw him part the waters, bring water from a rock, manna from heaven, a cloud that guided them by day, 
and a fiery pillar by night. God had delivered them over and over, proving that he was with them. Numerous times he did this, but they had spiritual amnesia and forgot. And you know what the cure for spiritual amnesia is? It's simply to recount what God has already done in your life. How much time do you think about what God has already brought you through? How he's provided for you? How he has protected you from things that you didn't even know about? Also, which is, this is the greatest remembrance. What has he done for you on the cross by sending his son to die in your place? Preaching the gospel to yourself daily on a regular basis if we truly get it, will pull you out of spiritual amnesia. We need to remind ourselves of his love for us. And thirdly, they were suffering from spiritual hardening of the arteries. Spiritual hardening of the arteries. When you are spiritually malnourished and you have spiritual amnesia, it always, always, always leads to a hardened heart. Always. And a hardened heart produces an ungrateful victim. That's what happens, happened in our story today, isn't it? All they can see is what's wrong. And it's not their fault. It's happened to them. And notice, instead of praising God for all he had done and was about to give them, they blame everybody else. And so the prescription for hardened arteries is, number one, to feast on God's word. Remember his work in your life. And number three, learn to praise him. Learn to praise him in your circumstances before he delivers you. Learn to praise him before he delivers you. Because if you do this, your heart will soften, your darkness will turn to light, the fire will be put out, and your tongue will become a river of life that pours forth praise and thanksgiving to God. And so as we continue as a church and as individuals to continue to move forward and navigate through trials and discouragements and victories, let us learn to magnify God. Let's learn to make much of God as Joshua and Caleb did because as we do, our hearts will be filled with faith and thanksgiving and our tongues will bring forth the fruit of life that God desires us to bear.